We're going to jump right into things. If you were here last week, you know that we started a brand new series that is titled Image Bearers. And uh, so in week one of our series, we tried our best to kind of lay out the foundation of what this concept means and how we ought to respond to it. And so at the very beginning, we went to Genesis chapter one, and we read about where this truth is revealed to us that we are made in the image of God. It's one of the most amazing, yet one of the most fundamental truths about who we are. I said last week, if you want to go into scripture to find out your identity and who you are, this is where you begin. We are made in the image of God. And then we started to dig into what exactly our response to that should be. What would be the result if we really understood that that is indeed our nature? And what we talked about is if we truly understood that this good God created us in his image, what that must ultimately lead us to is a deep place of rest and contentment. We talked about how in the context of this story, we see it over and over again, that if we would just accept who we truly are, we could rest in it. That, that we don't have to earn anything. We don't have to produce anything. We don't have to offer anything up. We are inherently loved. We are inherently valued because we are made in his image. And now it's time to rest in that. And so I want to continue to lay that out as the foundation, even as we stack on top of that over the next two weeks. I want us to continuously remind ourselves of that, of that truth. We are made in his image, and we need to rest in that. Let's never get that confused. But today, I want to jump into the topic of representation, meaning as image bearers, what would it look like to truly represent the one in whose image we bear? What does that look like? What do we need to do to ensure that this is happening? And so I want to go back to um, some of the scripture we read last week, just to kind of refresh you guys on it, and then we will begin to dig in. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is an abbreviated version of what we read last week. And what we spent some time doing is better understanding the context of this particular piece of literature. And what we determined is that historically, this is accredited to Moses as the writer. He is writing this to the people of Israel as they're wandering in the desert with this hope of the promised land that lies ahead of them. This is the context that we need to understand in order, order to rightly get these concepts. And so one of the things that I talked about last week is how in this particular day and age, what was interesting about the way that kingdoms and empires would reign 
is that the kings would create these images of themselves, right? There would be monuments, they would be statues, maybe it would be on the currency. And in fact, during the days of Jesus, it's exactly what we see, right? They ask him about paying taxes and he asks them, whose image is on the coin? And they say, that's Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God. We see this over and over again historically that these kings would create these images and then they would disperse them out into the land so that anytime the people would see these, they would be immediately reminded whose land they're in and who reigns within the land. It was a way for the kings to continue to show who exactly they were within their domain. And in fact, this is something as we read through history that the kings would take very, very seriously, okay? This was a significant thing to them. They were very intentional about how these images looked. They were very intentional about where they would be placed, where they would be positioned. They were very intentional about what they ultimately represented. So sometimes they would be these big bronze statues and they would represent the power and the authority of the king. Oftentimes they would put it on currency just to remind the people of the the wealth and the abundance of the king. Over and over again, it's gonna point to who the king is and to his character and what he's up to within the nations. And so when, when Moses says to the people in this day and age, you are created in the image of God, he is communicating something very significant to them. This is something that's very, very important to them. And they understand right out of the gate that they are to be representatives of the true king of the universe. This is who they have been created to be. It's a, a beautiful thing that is being communicated. But then the other layer of that is this importance and this significance that lies within. Because again, this is not something that the king would take lightly. This is not something that he would do on a whim. This is something that he was very intentional about. And so they understand that in their creation, that they are intentional, they are significant, they are important to what God is ultimately up to. We even see this in the handing down of the 10 commandments. What we see within that is it says, do not make for yourself an image of anything in heaven above or earth below. The reason that that's in there is because God had already created the images that he wanted. He had already created the the ones that he wanted to represent him. And so what's interesting as we read across history, when they would go and they would get rid of those idols and they would destroy those images, they would do this not only because it was an assault against God, but because it was an assault against the very purpose and the intrinsic value of them. That's what it was. They were the images of God. We are the representatives of the king of this universe and we are the only things that will do that. And so it's this beautiful thing that we're pointed to over and over again throughout the narrative. But, but what's interesting is Moses will continue to point to things that ultimately represent our image-bearing nature. In other words, he's going to use different verbiage to try to explain to us what exactly that means. And when it comes to truly representing the king of the universe, he uses a really interesting phrase, okay? It's not something that we talk much about or think much about, but it's something that is very significant. So let's go to Exodus chapter 19. Starting in verse 5, he's recording the very words of God here. And so this is when our ears should perk up. It says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, 
For all the earth is mine, verse six, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I wanna center in on that phrase, a kingdom of priests. Because again, this is probably something as we're reading through scripture that we would kind of move right past, whatever that means, right? We're gonna go on to the next thing. But this is telling us something very important about who we are and how we are to represent the kingdom of God. And so I wanna start with that word priest. And maybe that's the word that sticks out to you most. This is a word that certainly all of us have heard before, but really in our day and age, this doesn't hold the significance that it once did. In fact, in many ways, we misunderstand what that word was intended to be. Um, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, that's just an Old Testament word, right? We, we see that over there. But actually in the New Testament, we see the same exact thing as it relates to who we are, okay? In 1 Peter chapter two, it says that we are a royal priesthood. This is how it describes us. In Revelation 5, 10, it says, you have made them, so there's this idea of creation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So there's something here that we need to better understand as it relates to how we live this life for our king. And so as you go back and you study the priestly history and you read about what the rabbis say about the the role and responsibilities that they played, there are four primary things that priests were typically responsible for, okay? Four roles that typically they would play on a daily basis, and that's important to remember. And so I'm gonna move through these pretty quick. If you're a note taker, follow along with me closely. But at the end of each one of these, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna ask us a reflective question so that we can begin to understand what this means for our lives and our perspectives. So let's start with the first one. The first priestly responsibility that we see is that they were to put God on display in everything that they did. They were to put God on display in everything that they did. This is really the first, really the most important thing that they were called to do. They were a people that were to be set apart in in how they look and how they act and how they treat other people. They were to be set apart so that when the people would see the priests, immediately they would think about, be pointed to the creator God of the universe. Continue to put him on display in everything that we do. This is the first thing that they were responsible for. Here's the reflective question. How do you put God on display in our culture? How do you put God on display in our culture that when people see you, that they might be reminded of, that their attention might be pointed to the creator God of the universe? How are we doing when it comes to this? This is the first one we need to understand. Here's the second one. The priests were responsible for helping people navigate atonement, okay? This is something they did on a daily basis. They were responsible for helping people navigate this idea of atonement. And so this is one of the practical things that they did every single day. The people would come and the priests would help them understand, okay, so here is the animal that you need to get. Here are the steps you need to take for the sacrifice. Here is the process that you need to go through to ensure that your sins are atoned for. Over and over again, they're helping people navigate through this process. Now, we know in the New Testament that Jesus is the atonement, right? He is the ultimate sacrifice. Once and for all, he has paid the price. And so here's our reflective question. How are we helping people get to Jesus? 
every single day of our lives. How are we helping people get to Jesus who is the ultimate atonement? Here's number three. And these last two, we're going to spend a little bit more time in the end with. So I'll move through this pretty quickly. But the third one, very interesting. The priests were responsible for interceding on behalf of others. Interceding on behalf of of others. What this means is that they would stand in the gap between God and the people and they would intercede on behalf of the people, plead on behalf of the people. One of the beautiful pictures we get of this many times is Moses. The people of Israel would mess up, they would fall short, and sometimes they did that in some pretty major ways. And he would stand in the gap and he would plead to God, God, have mercy on them. I pray for your grace, I pray for your loving kindness to be poured out on your people. He would stand in the gap for the people. Here's our question. Do we stand in the gap and plead on the behalf of others? Is this something that we are doing? Here's the fourth and final one. And this one is is pretty obvious and self-explanatory, but very, very important. The priests were responsible for distributing resources to those who were in need. This is one of the things that they would do every single day. Historically, we read that the people would, would bring their herbs and spices and their crops. They would bring them to the temple and the priests would have to understand what are the needs of the people? Who needs what? And they would distribute accordingly, making sure everybody was taken care of. This is one of the roles that they would play. Here's the question. Do we steward the things God has given us to help those in need? Are we stewarding our resources in this way? These are the four priestly responsibilities we see over and over again historically And this is ultimately, listen, this is ultimately how we represent the kingdom of God. We need to take these very, very seriously. Now, I wanna go back to this phrase that Moses uh, reported from God, that we are to be a kingdom of priests. And I wanna backtrack and I wanna talk about that first word, kingdom, because there's a, a lot of significance here that we need to understand. In fact, we saw it in the Revelation scripture as well. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. So there's some distinction between the two. We need to make sure we understand both of them. Now, it's interesting because kingdom language within the scriptures is very, very common. We, we see this language over and over again. In fact, in our Hebrew Old Testament, in the original language, the word for kingdom is used 117 times. 117 times. In our Greek New Testament, in the original language, it's used 162 times. Now, if you know your biblical lexicon, you know that's a lot, okay? For a word like kingdom to be used that much, there's something going on here that we need to be aware of. And what's really cool here, especially as we look to the New Testament, is of the 162 times that it's used, 118 of them are condensed within the gospel story. In other words, the vast majority of the time that we see kingdom language in the New Testament is in the incarnation of Christ. Now, why would that be? Why would all of a sudden we hear about this over and over again as Jesus comes to earth? Because the king had arrived. The, the, the king had come, and now the gospel writers are reporting, guess what? The kingdom of God is here. We read this over and over again. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. And in fact, go read through the New Testament and read how often Jesus is called king. Very intentional language. He is called king in his birth. He is called king in his death. After his ascension, he's called the king of kings. Over and over again, we see this. Now, now maybe, you're, maybe you're not catching it yet, but if Jesus is king, 
that tells us everything we need to know about who we are as image bearers. Let me go back to the metaphor I used earlier. The king would send out his images to represent him. And this is exactly what Jesus has done in and through us. If you ever wonder why we talk so much about being like Christ or growing in Christ's likeness, this is the reason why. It's not because he was a good guy that we are to emulate. It's because we are to reflect his very image into the world. This is who we are as image bearers. This is who we are. Now, here's the thing. And this is really where we have to kind of bring, bring things home and we need to get the big picture here. This is so very important. If we go back to those old kingdom days that we're talking about, as these rulers, these kings would send out these images of themselves. What we read historically is that the vast majority of the time, almost every single time that this was done, as these images were sent out, they represented a reign of, of abuse. These images, they would represent this reign of, of cruelty, sometimes oppression. If nothing else, they represented an unbelievable amount of pride and ego and selfishness. And so when the people would see these images, listen, it would incite fear within them. It would incite inadequacy. It would incite insecurity. When they would see these images of the king, all of these negative thoughts and emotions would begin to rise up within the people. And this is one of the most beautiful things we see about the kingdom of God because his kingdom is so very different. The king is so very different. He does not usher in a reign of abuse and, and oppression and, and pride. Listen closely. What Jesus ushers in is a kingdom of love, a kingdom of grace, and a kingdom of peace. Please do not let that just be words that enter your ears. What Jesus ushers in is a kingdom of love, a kingdom of compassion, a kingdom of selflessness and sacrifice. This is the kingdom of God. As we go read the, the gospels, the life that Jesus lived, the things that he said, we really begin to see what the kingdom of God is like. And it's not what we would expect. It's not what you and I would predict. It looks very, very different. It's a kingdom that says, I've come to serve, not to be served. That, that's the type of kingdom that we're a part of. It's a kingdom that says, love your enemy and do good to them. I'm gonna take culture, I'm gonna flip it upside down. Your enemy, you do good to them. You take care of them, you love them. It's a kingdom that looks like eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, regardless of what people think about you. It's a kingdom that prioritizes the sick and the needy and the marginalized. We're gonna make sure those people are taken care of. It's a kingdom where the king himself will lay down his life on behalf of the people. That's the kingdom we're talking about. So very different than any other kingdom we have seen or will ever see. This is the kingdom that we serve. If you're gonna sum it up in one way, and I need you so badly to grasp this, what we're talking about and what Jesus ushers in is a kingdom of restoration. This is what Jesus is about. He is about restoring. He is about reconciling. We read in Revelation 21, it says, behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. If you wanna know what Jesus is up to, if you wanna know his heart, this is it. Restoring, renewing, reconciling his creation. That's what he's up to. 
In fact, as we go to Colossians chapter one, we see this really beautiful piece of literature around who Jesus is, and it certainly relates to our series because it tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. Talk about image bearing, what that means, what that looks like. Jesus is the image. He's the one that we look to. He's the one that we represent. But then watch what it goes on to say. We skip right on by this. Watch what it says about his purpose and his plan, starting in verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile, somebody say that word, all things, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let me tell you, throughout the course of history, somehow we have missed what that is about. Somehow we have turned this into something that it is not about. And what Paul is trying to say is that Jesus's kingdom is a kingdom of restoration, of reconciliation, and of peace. And he has sent us out to be a part of that work. Who are we as image bearers? We are restorers. We are healers. We are to spread mercy and compassion into the land to show who our king truly is. Listen to me so closely. If you wanna be a true image bearer in the fullest sense of that, you have to give your life to that. You have to give your life to restoring, to reconciling, to making all things new. This is what we're a part of. This is what we're invited into. This is who we are as his people. And so I wanna go back to two of those priestly responsibilities for a second, because there's two in particular that I think in our culture, and our society, we are missing the mark in some major ways. I mean, in some devastating ways. And so I wanna dig into these things. And if you would allow me just for a few minutes to, um, to maybe just pastor a little bit, maybe just shepherd a little bit to, to the direction that we ought to be heading in. And so I'm asking you, soften your hearts. I might get a little riled up. I don't know what's gonna happen. I wanna start with this priestly responsibility of distributing the resources to those in need. This is what the priests would do day after day after day. They would give their lives to giving to the needs of the people. And uh, I mean, I don't know any other way to say it than to say in our culture, in our society, and I'm talking about each and every one of us in this room, each and every one of us watching online, we are failing. I don't know any other way to say it, but we are failing. In our culture, we live in our own little bubble we're close-fisted with everything that we have, and we want more, 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 completely oblivious to the needs of the people. Do you know that over 800 million people in this world today are considered to be malnourished? 800 million, meaning they don't have enough food to be healthy or to be sustainable. And in fact, more than 10% of them over this next year will die from starvation. If that doesn't do something to your heart, we got a bigger problem. 
Over 8 million people this year alone will die from curable diseases across this world. And when I say curable, what I mean is you could go home right now into your cupboard or cabinet and provide the resolution. Over 8 million people. We are in a world that is hurting, that is starving. And what are we doing? Living in our bubbles, closed-fisted, asking for more asking for more. We were talking about this in our life group this past week. Plug for life groups. If you're not in one, get in one. (laughs) We were talking about this and we were talking about how twisted our hearts must be. How twisted up our hearts must be in the cultural narrative that we make as much money as we do And we have as much stuff as we have. By the way, the average person in this room would be in the top like 2% of the world's wealth and possessions. So we're talking about like upper, 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 upper echelon. Every single one of us is considered rich without a doubt. We have as much money as we have. We have as many possessions as we have. And for many of us, every single day of our lives, we are full of anxiety and stress and worry that we're not gonna have enough. Almost every one of us live in that fear that we're not going to have enough. In fact, I, I, I hear people in our culture, even some of my friends, talking about how you know, they're worried about taking care of their kids. I got to make sure my kids are taken care of. I got to make sure. And, and I, I mean, goodness, I get that. But I'm thinking to myself, I know how much money you make. I, I've been to your house. I've seen all the stuff you have. In fact, I, I've, I've looked in your pantry. There's plenty of food. You're worried? You're worried if your kids are going to be okay? Do you know that a child dies every 10 seconds in this world from hunger? I'm talking about beautiful, valuable little children. Every 10 seconds. We're worried? How twisted our hearts must be how twisted our perspective must be that so many people are hurting and so many people are in need and we just continue to gain more. Now, listen to me. What I am am not communicating to you is that you should feel bad for the things that you have. I'm not communicating to you that you should feel guilty for the good things that God has given you. I would say the opposite. Rejoice in that. Be grateful for that much more than you are. Here's what I am trying to communicate. You need to understand Maybe why God is giving you those things. Maybe you need to better understand what he wants to be done with those things. I hear people talking when it comes to generosity and and giving to others. Man, I just don't have room in my budget. I just don't have room in my budget. (laughs) Well, I have a feeling if I looked at the budget, I could make some room. I have a feeling that you probably need to flip that upside down. You need to start with generosity. You need to start with cheerful giving. And then you can budget the rest of it. And let me just say, I'm not even talking about tithing. If you think I'm trying to send subliminal messages, I'll say it straight. I'm not talking about tithing. I'm talking about giving to the needs of the people across this world. I don't care if you're giving it directly to your neighbor or if you're giving it to a homeless shelter or if you're giving it to the people in Africa who desperately need it. I don't care. 
You start with cheerful giving. You start with generosity, and then you figure out how you're going to take care of the rest of it. That's, that's how a representative of the king deals with their resources. I'm telling you guys, <laughs> we need a desperate, desperate change of mind here. We need to repent and change our minds about why God is giving us the things he's giving us and what we ought to do with it. I was telling Devin yesterday, this is one of those things. We are so twisted up here. We're so messed up with our perspective here. I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life, the rest of my ministry, just slowly chipping away at this. Just reminding you over and over and over again why God has given you the things he's given you and what you ought to do with it. This is who we are to be within the kingdom of God. This is how we represent the king. But let's move to that last thing, which is interceding on behalf of others. This is that other thing that, that priests would take part in every day. And uh, I'm going to take a deep breath on this one. As I look across the history of the church, the history of Christianity, I'm not sure that there's anything we've failed with more than this. Now, when I say intercede on behalf of the people, maybe your mind goes to intercessory prayer, praying for the needs of the people. That's fantastic. You should do that. That's a piece of this. But I want to take you back to that picture of Moses, who is standing in the gap between God and the people, and he's pleading, God, have mercy. God, show them your love and your compassion. God, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. And instead, what we have done as the church universal over and over again is we stand in the gap and we push people away. Wait, wait, wait. You live your life that way? No, 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 no. Wait, you're a part of that people group? No, 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 no. Do you understand how twisted that is? Do you understand how sick that perspective is? Do you understand how quickly we forget who we are? Jesus has plenty of things to say about this type of attitude. Plenty of things to say. In fact, we read this in Matthew 23, verse 13. He says, with a little bit of righteous anger, he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. This is what the church has done far too often. I read a quote a few years ago that has continued to haunt me. It said, the church has become a barrier to God rather than a conduit. Guys, we're missing one of our primary purposes on earth. <laughs> Every one of us is guilty of this every one of us, myself included. There's somebody in your life, there's a people group that you look at this way. You are standing in the gap and you are actively pushing them away from God. And I'm begging you to turn around and begin to plead the mercy of God. Begin to plead his love over them. I'm begging you. 
if we are going to see the kingdom expand, this is where we have to start. I mean it. If Jesus ushered in a kingdom of restoration, what do you think he wants from us? Do you think he wants us standing in the gap and pushing people away? Or do you think he wants us to turn around and plead on behalf? God, welcome them and invite them into your kingdom, I pray. This is something we desperately have to change. Something we desperately have to change. Every single day, we need to think about the people, the people groups that we have this attitude about. And we need to pray that God would soften our hearts. We need to repent. And we need to get in the middle and intercede on their behalf. This is what God would have for us. This is how we represent the king. I just want you to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself very seriously as you survey your life, your perspective, the things that you do, the things that you prioritize. I want you to think about those things right now. The way you live your life, things you think about, things you prioritize. I want you to ask yourself, whose kingdom are you truly serving? Like, like what kingdom are you truly given to? What, what king are you truly representing through your life, through your perspective, through your actions? And if it's not the kingdom of God, and if it's not King Jesus, today, today, I am asking you to get on your knees and I'm asking you to change your mind. I'm asking that you would pray and plead with him that he would change your heart in a way that begins to see differently, that begins to act differently, that begins to represent who he truly is across his land.